Grab your phone, tablet, or whatever you listen on and get comfy. Because here's another great episode of the Pop Zara Podcast. Enjoy it. Appearing exclusively here at the Android Dungeon, take that, Messrs. Barnes and Noble, the King of Splatter, Tom Savini. Good evening. <clears throat> Sorry, I, I had a really big dinner. Woo! Dinner! But I'm sure one more french fry wouldn't hurt. Oh, we missed the gut buster! Yeah, that should be us covered with blood. Welcome back to the Popsara Podcast. This is your host, Nathan Evans, on a very special Halloween-themed episode. We are talking with the one, the only, Mr. Tom Savini. That's right. Talking about the new documentary, Smoke and Mirrors, the story of Tom Savini, about and starring the only one and only sex machine himself, Mr. Tom Savini. That's a lot of Tom Savinis. Welcome to the podcast. I know. You must have said that 20 times. I could say it more. We could do it more. Uh, We'd be here all day. No, I, I just want to say thank you very much for joining us. I will say this, Tom. So the documentary is called Smoke and Mirrors, the story of Tom Savini. And I'm not crazy, but I remember hearing about this thing years and years and years ago and really wanting to see it and finally surprised it's finally out. Well, it took seven years to make it. Well, let me ask you a question. So when we finally watch it, are you familiar? Have you ever seen that other documentary called The Definitive Document of the Dead by, uh, I think it was Roy Frumkus? I think I own it somewhere, yeah. Well, I know you're on it uh, very prominently, you and George Romero. Uh, I said, I think I own it. Oh, like the actual, the own the rights to the film? No, no, the a copy of it. Oh, okay. You, you asked me if I had seen it, so... By me saying I own it means I saw it, yeah. I apologize. I Sometimes when you talk to certain people, they, they, <clears throat> they own a lot of things, but they haven't watched it. Like somehow when people collect action figures that they never play with. So <laughs> I just want to make sure. Oh, no, uh, I, I, I completely agree with you. I, I'm a, I do the same thing. I'll own something and then I haven't seen it in years, you know, or never watched it. But not in this case. Well, the documentary is fascinating because it takes place over, I think, 40 years, and you could see the, the changes in the people and the situations. And in Smoke and Mirrors, it's very similar that you can, you can see this, the stages which it was filmed, and it's fascinating. I don't know exactly when production stopped, but I don't think it matters because I think what it does, uh, I think the film gives a very good swash of who you are as a person and your influence on the industry, and I, I really enjoyed it, but... I got to tell you, I, I got a question for you, and it's driving me crazy. When I was doing some research, I came across an interview you did back in the early 80s on a show called Livewire. I think it was from Nickelodeon. Yeah. Yeah. And I remember seeing that show as a kid that with you know, all the great Canadian Nickelodeon shows like you can't do that on television. And it was with Fred Newman. And I had to stop for a second because it was you and Fred talking and showing off severed you know, hands, limbs, tattered faces, blood ghoul to this audience of kids and the kids are so into it. They're enjoying it. They're laughing. They're asking questions. And I thought to myself, that wouldn't happen today. You don't think that would happen today? I would love it if it happened today. But I think, I think today you look at that and you look at that and you wonder what the parents would have to think about showing, like asking kids questions about creep show and maniac, which I, I love. I'm that generation. I love it. But I, I don't know. What do you think? Well, I think, I think in a way it's like a magician showing you how the magic trick works you know i think the kid i think the kids were enthralled by that stuff Uh, and i hope it diffused their fear in you know because 
I got kids coming to conventions that are like nine, 10, 12, and they had just seen from dusk till dawn. And I'm like, you're, you, you, you were allowed to watch that, you know? Uh, so I think the parents are starting their kids off today uh, uh, younger, you know? I mean, uh, I can't tell you. I did a convention in Phoenix, Arizona, when uh, there were a lot of uh, Native Americans there. And um, these kids were coming up to me and peeling off $100 bills to buy stuff, you know, pictures of mm-hmm. monsters and cutthroats and stuff like that. Uh, it surprised the hell out of me. But uh, you never know. Uh, <clears throat> at conventions, the fans range from little kids like that to, you know, doctors and lawyers and senior citizens. Um, so, uh, but getting back to the point, I think maybe you're right. I mean, people are too offended these days and red flags go up and Mm -hmm. people are canceled at the slightest thing. You know, it's like uh, I'm 74 and I've been through uh, primitive technology up to today's technology. I mean, if I, there was a time where if I took your picture, I would have to go to my dark room and take the film out of the camera and load it onto a, a reel that would go into a can that you put a lid on to keep the light out and then pour three chemicals in it of the correct temperature and then bring the film out and wash it, hang it up, dry it, squeegee it, and then stick it into an enlarger and project it onto a thing with photo paper in it and put that paper in three chemicals to produce a picture. Today, I take your picture, 10 seconds later, it's in my wife's hands in Australia, you know. So I've seen this progression. I've seen, um, and I've also seen this progression of, well, I, I read something interesting, something about the internet doesn't cure the lame, but it sure gives voice to the stupid, okay? That's true. I'm, if you ask me what scares me, I w- well, after razors and spiders, I would have to say stupid people. Uh, or just in general, uh, uh, crazy people, you know. But anyway, I'm getting way off the point here. No, um, I think I think today when I look at children's shows, right, shows meant for kids, like the tele, well, even the Teletubbies, they're not new, but a lot of the children's programming or even programming for young adults, it's so sanitized and so patronizing to what children are capable of understanding that when I look back at this and I see these kids asking you healthy questions and they're having fun and they're engaged and they're looking at it, they're looking at the creatures that you show, not like they're macabre, you know, ghoulish, devilish things, but puppets, no different than Jim Henson puppets in a way. I mean, you look at, and again, this is why I wanted to say, like when I first started watching the documentary, Tom, I first thought to myself, how come it's not called blood and guts? That would make sense. Then you watch it. And you get it because you're you are making the case successfully that you are a magician, that you are creating these illusions on the stage in real time with practical effects and making people believe what they're seeing is not only not so much real, but in a way magic because they believe it in the moment. And I think I again, I think you make this case the same way Jim Henson could make people believe a felt frog could sing and dance. Right. Well, um, one reason that it's not called blood and guts, <laughs> even though there's a lot of blood and guts in it. I mean, that's kind of like, uh, I think on my tombstone, that's, it's going to say, you know, the king of splatter, the wizard of gore, 
you know, I try to I try to get people to stop saying that about me, especially at my school. I've had him change the Godfather of Gore to the Maestro of makeup, because and but another reason it's not blood and guts is because, you know, I that's not all I've done. I've done so many wonderful creatures and monsters and characters that I hated being I hated being just categorized as uh, as blood and guts. But the other thing is, how long ago was that? Uh, you said that guy's name was Jim Newman. I think it's Fred Newman. And Fred the, Newman, only, yeah. the, the only reason I remember him is because in the 80s, even more terrifying than anything you've ever done, he was the host of the new Mickey Mouse Club years later. Right. And, right. and, and, and I always wondered when I was watching the show why this middle aged man was dancing with children. And I get it well, now. Um, yeah. I mean, <laughs> no, that, that might be something you couldn't do today. <laughs> Probably. You know, him, this middle aged man dancing with children, you know. But, um, uh, but you're speaking of uh, uh, a better time, mm-hmm. a, a better, yeah. And the other thing you said is right on spot. And that is um, uh, when my students come into my school, they spend their first day with me. And I try to get them to have the mindset of what it takes to be a special makeup effects artist. And you kind of just quoted me because I tell them the mindset is, what do I need to see to make me believe that what I'm seeing is really happening? And then that becomes, what do I need to show people to make them believe that what they're seeing is really happening? And that is exactly what a magician does. Mm-hmm. A magician you know, will make you look over here and I pulled flowers out of my butt. I, mis- I misdirected you. Plus there's so many mechanical devices you're not aware of that make the magic trick work. And that's exactly what we do in special, in practical special makeup effects. You know, I, I, not to labor the point or anything, but, you know, there's, there's that famous photo and video of, of Jim Henson puppeting Kermit. And you can clearly see, you know, where the, the false stage is, and you can see Henson's arm up Kermit's backside as he's, and as he's talking to this little girl and the little girl is so entranced with Jim Henson. I mean, Kermit, she can't see Jim Henson anymore. All she sees is Kermit. She believes it. And that's right well, in front of a, you. There's a famous movie called Lily. Did you ever see this movie, Lily? No. Le- Leslie Caron and Mel Ferrer. She's, she comes into town and she is picked up by this circus as a dancer. And uh, these puppets talk to her. No, it's Mel Ferrer and his assistant, you know, operating the puppets. And she doesn't, she, she just believes she's very naive. <laughs> she believes these puppets exist. In fact, she even has a dream sequence where she's dancing down this long yellow brick road, not really yellow brick road, but a long road, dancing with the puppets, okay? And at one point, at one point, you see the look on her face of realization, and she grabs the puppet and pulls it, and there's Mel Ferrer, who she's already in love with because he is, in essence, the puppet, okay? Anyway, but that's a good analogy. where we kind of make you not see the hand up the butt, you know, when we're, when we're doing stuff, you know. Well, and, you know, just to finish off, cause I know we're going to talk about this a little bit about practical versus CG, but, you know, in a lot of the new puppet movies, they go through all this trouble to digitally remove the puppeteers as though we right. don't know they're there. And, and to me, it, it always looks awkward. It never looks right. like it's missing something like the, the stuff that you are not supposed to see has been taken out and it removes some of the magic and it's it's almost offensive to watch sometimes 
Um, yeah, I mean, I, I like CGI when it's done well, mm-hmm. but, but they haven't mastered so many things to, uh, but you know, it's also an economic decision to use CGI sometimes, because if I had to go back in Day of the Dead, the night that we tore Joe Pilato apart, <laughs> if, I had to, if I had to go back and reset that, it would take six hours or more. You know, you, know, you can't afford to do that on a, on a movie set that's you know, costing you so much every day. Um, but also in like The Walking Dead, though, I remember a scene, Greg Nicotero directed this scene where people were being bopped on the back of the head and their throats were cut and they were bleeding into a trough. They didn't even put appliances on those actors' necks. There was just tubing there. And the visual effects guys simply removed it, you know, afterwards. So um, <clears throat> it's an economic reason. It's the cleanup. Uh, CGI blood is easier to clean up yeah. than the real sticky stuff. You know? I, had a, I had a friend who was at Walmart the other day, and she found this bunch of yarn that looked like spaghetti. And she held it up to her stomach, and we took a picture, and we just captioned it, choke on them. And, you know, you can do so much with just, just stuff that's in front of you. It's, it's, well, so, much, but- it's so much fun. I know, but when we did it, it was pig intestines. <laughs> well, a lot of people think there was a chicken in that scene. I don't think there's a chicken, but I, I'm no, not team chicken. No, no, it was just kind of uh, an irregular grabbing of a bunch of different organs and rubber intestines and stuff that looked like a rubber chicken. You know, I get that a lot. People do see a chicken, but it's not there. Well, I was going to I'll say this, though, uh, regarding regarding that whole comparison. Uh, that, uh, you know, Jim Henson had Sweetums and you had Fluffy. So there's a lot of compare. I think for anybody who's interested in that, I would say um, you do represent you do represent practical effects in puppetry much better than most. And I'm 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 glad to know it. And before we move on, though, uh, one thing I've always wanted to ask you, and I never thought I could ask you this, but growing up, I remember as a kid reading uh, your copy of the book, Grand Illusions. I think it was the first one. I think this was before the second one came out and pouring over it and and trying to mimic some of the effects that you had done there. And I think I realized early on that I'm not a magician and I can't do it. And I much appreciate watching it more than participating. But my question to you is, uh, going back to the whole teaching thing, because I, I do want to get into your school later, uh, how, how important it is for you to sort of pass on the knowledge and to make sure that a future generation appreciates what you do? Well, it's uh, very important because when I was growing up trying to learn special makeup effects, you couldn't. They, uh, they, everybody kept their secrets. Nobody shared their secrets except Dick Smith. Dick Smith was the greatest living makeup artist on the planet. He invented everything that we do. And his attitude was, if he shares it, I mean, I, I would call him on the phone nervous as hell. And uh, he was like, what? I'm busy. What do you want? You know, and I'm, and I'm nervous. I'm already nervous. And, he, and I couldn't think of questions. He said, well, next time, write your questions down and call me so that you can, we can go through them, you know. Now, I'm telling you that two hours later, we are still on the phone. And he's telling me how to do stuff. His blood formula foam latex formula and then he would type it up and xerox it it was xerox back then and send it to you he so much shared his secret because he felt the more he did that the more this the bar would be raised the more the state of the art would improve because me rick baker stan winston rob botin you know we would use his uh, techniques and 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 enhance them somehow 
and give them back to him, you know? So he kept the bar raised high. So the school uh, in one way was yes, a way, I wish I had the school when I was trying to learn mm-hmm. pickup affectionate. So we make it very easy. You know, the school is 16 months. You know, it cost as much as other schools for like 11 weeks, you know, but we're not kidding around. It's 16 months. And it's, it's a degree, you get a degree, a two-year degree. Parents love the fact that uh, that there's a degree involved, you know, so. Of course, they want to make sure their money's spent well. Exactly. Right. <laughs> they, uh, I remember, I'm glad you mentioned Dick Smith because I remember the first time I ever, uh, I was ever, I ever noticed a makeup artist was watching, I think, Little Big Man or The Exorcist. And it was so impressive. And um, the other one, I, I didn't know, I didn't know much because you don't hear people talking about it much more, but John Chambers you know, was one of my favorites, especially since you, you take something like the mask he made for, you know, Planet of the Apes, and people mock them now a little bit. They say, oh, they don't look realistic. Rick Baker's better. But I think that sometimes you have these classic styles that were made by an artist, and I think they endure, and I think they become part of pop culture, and I think it transcends the fact they don't look photoreal. They look they look exactly right, like the way they should. For example... Well, uh, no, go ahead. No, I, I could go off all day on this because I have so many questions I wanted to ask you because I'll be honest with you, Tom, uh, two of my favorite films of all time are the original Dawn of the Dead and Day of the Dead. And I could I would I would love you know, I would I could talk all day about like Dr. Tongue or Bub, everybody's favorite Bub. But there's so much more to it than that. And that's why I, I, I'm just really glad that there's something like this documentary where people can see like the breadth of what goes into it. I was at a I was at a producer screening of the movie Argo and on stage was George Clooney who produced it, um, Ben Affleck, Brian Cranston. And I raised my hand and personally thanked them for bringing John Chambers to light mm-hmm. in that movie, you know, as far as, you know, cause I've done the same thing. I've done work for the FBI, making up witnesses, who could go into a courtroom and not be recognized. And, you know, he did it to the umpteenth degree as far as, yeah. you know, bringing back the hostages. So yeah, I agree with you about John Chambers, but, but, but back then those makeups were completely real. They're not real to the people, the new generation today, mm-hmm. <clears throat> but, um, but they were, they were, they were right on. In fact, I have one of the Planet of the Apes masks that an extra would wear in that uh, when they were sitting in those, um, uh, what do you call uh, those raked seating for stadiums? The bleachers, when all the apes were sitting on the, the soldier apes, you know, those were all masks that the chambers had produced. I have a quick question for you. Uh, when when people attend Tom Savini's special makeup effects program, if I didn't get that right, correct me, please. How much of that is centered on the history of practical effects and makeup as like both before and after you? Well, that's a good question. On that first day, of my class when they spend it with me, I'll pick somebody out of the group and I'll say, who's Boris Karloff? They don't know. I would say, who's Lon Chaney? They don't know. And I'm thinking, you know, if you're gonna, if you're gonna apply and come to a makeup effects school, mm-hmm. do some research on the greatest makeup artists or uh, horror actors, you know, that wore those makeups as possible. I mean, it's, 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 I would say most of them do know, but uh, it, anno- it annoys the hell out of me when some don't, you know. But these are kids fresh out of high school. Listen, it doesn't surprise me because I saw, 
I saw a thing on TV where um, they went to a college campus and they asked 10 students two questions. One question was, who won the Civil War? They didn't know. But they, the second question was, what TV series that Snooky star in? They all knew it. They all knew the Jersey Shore. So I'm about to post something on either Facebook or Instagram about how sad I am to see all these misspellings and, and, and not even punctuation. Is that the state of our education these days? Because I pride myself on punctuation. I, you know, I, the first time I went to college, I majored in journalism, you know. So the English language is very precious to me. And I can't believe how, what I'm seeing, you know, it's just appalling. Anyway, I went no. off track. Again. I went off track. Well, I'm glad you mentioned Snooky. I'm, you know, speaking of frightening things online. They, right. But, you know, but that, but to segue into that a little bit, uh, YouTube and a lot of these videos, uh, one of the most popular genres is makeup tutorials. Um, of course, a lot of that has to do with like contouring and, you know, uh, beauty products. But no, but they, I, I've seen some great stuff. On yeah. That. And there's especially a lot of young, a lot of, especially a lot of young female uh, makeup artists, especially. Well, let me. Let me tell you, uh, 54 new students arrived at my school mm -hmm. two, weeks, two weeks ago, and almost, almost all female. Mm -hmm. I believe it. It's, you know, it's, and you see, but you see the rise, you see like billionaires being made out of these beauty products, but you also see like, uh, I, don't want, I don't know what you'd call it anymore, the trade shows or whatever Comic-Con has become, but you see the rise of cosplay, unlike anything I've ever seen in my lifetime where people take it, it's being considered a serious art where people can replicate these cartoon characters in real life. And the stuff they're doing is way beyond amateur. It's, it's, oh, yeah. it's, a, it's a lot of fun, impressive to look at because that stuff never existed when I was a kid. People just- I agree. Yeah, put on Spock ears that they bought at you know, the, the drugstore. I know. I know, these kids go all out. Well, full suits of armor and mm -hmm. the costuming alone. Uh, and again, the- the, the makeup stuff I watch on YouTube is some of it's, I mean, some of it's bad, but yeah. most of it is, most of it is astounding, but it brings to mind that uh, I get letters from kids, you know, 14, 15 years old, and they've glued some sponges to their head and they poured blood over it. And they send it to me with a, they have a letterhead, Joe Blow's special makeup effects studio. Now he knows nothing about special makeup effects, but the idea of being, a special makeup effects artist. I think makeup effects is a celebrity. It's a star and people want to have it, want to achieve it. And, you know, ask any of my students at my school and they'll agree. They'll say the same thing, you know. You know, and that's, and that's something I wanted to ask you about as we segue away from that a little bit is that I think the kids today, they use the word popularizer, like someone who has some knowledge in the field, like a Neil deGrasse Tyson or whatever. And they'll gain some notoriety because they'll take a subject that you can tell the corporations when they produce television shows for children, like they, they don't think kids would be interested in science or math or makeup, but they are. And, and when you see someone like that who has some knowledge, they become almost Socratic a little bit. They become interesting. And I don't think it matters how old that person is or how much or how, you know, how popular they are at the moment. And I think with you particularly the younger generation is starting to 
rediscover just how influential you, you were and just how influential you're continuing to be to these younger kids who have who have never seen creep show who've never seen day of the dead they've seen remakes you know the awful 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 remakes sometimes they've seen like for example you know in the 1980s you had robocop very bloody very funny and then you and you have a remake where the blood has been largely drained out and it's for a pg-13 rating and the practical effects are replaced with cg and i like you said i i like cg too but there's some there's an artistry i think at place with the practical effects that really entrances these kids it's interesting to them that you can do this and well, i don't yeah it's a different feeling when you watch like when you see my stuff that's happening right in front of you at the very moment you're looking at it mm-hmm. um rick baker's transformation werewolf transformation in American world, that's happening right in front of you. Um, there's a certain disconnect with CGI stuff. If it looks impossible, well, it must be CGI. And that's not fair. Uh, Greg Nicotero did this great makeup job on the baseball player in Land of the Dead where it looked like, you know, half her face is missing, you can see her mm-hmm. teeth. That was a makeup, but people thought it was CGI because it looked impossible. You know? Yeah. And, you know, speaking of that, I was going to ask you a question specifically regarding that. You mentioned you appreciate CGI as well. But as someone who relates practical effects to magic, has anybody ever suggested that one of the reasons we like practical effects so much is because your brain is trying to figure out how you did it? Like, how's the trick done? Absolutely. With CG, you know how it's done. CG. Like, there's no there's no magic. There's no question there. I mean, as as photorealistic as it could look, it was done on a computer. But with practical effects, like what went into it? Like who's who's pulling the strings? Who's who's shooting? Well, the difference. Yeah. The difference. The difference is uh, when you're watching practical effects, you're almost like, well, what do what would I need to do to make to do that? How would I make that happen? With CGI effects, you have no idea how they're doing it on the computer or the graphic 3D 3D graph. You know, you have no idea. So there's a disconnect between your your willingness to not only wonder how they did it, but do it yourself. You can't, you can't make a T-Rex jump over a car. You're, I mean, even though there was a practical, huge sculpture, mechanized T-Rex, you know, mm-hmm. you can't imagine how they put legs on it and made it run, you know? So, um, but in a way, in a way that kind of helps the magic. If you don't have to sit there and wonder how they do it. I mean, sort of, sort of the, the awe, the A-W-E, the awe, of seeing that is like you said, you know, wondering how the hell did they do that? Especially if it's practical, you know, but here's the deal. Um, when I was a kid, I believed every, the Frankenstein, the Wolfman, you've heard me say this in smoke and mirrors. I knew they were real. And when I got behind the scenes, it kind of destroyed that magic. And I wish I could through the eyes. I wish I could see a movie again through the eyes of a nine-year-old child, but that magic is replaced by, the magic of creativity and that's something else that my school is about i you know i keep bringing up my school but it's it's the joy of creativity the joy of creativity is you know we got students coming in that have never sculpted before you put a blob of clay in front of them and suddenly they produce something they didn't know they had inside them it's they've given life to something that never existed until they decided to make it exist. It's, I, I tell them, you're like Dr. Frankenstein, you're pulling a switch on your talent to see what rises up off the operating table. You know, uh, that's the joy 
the the one somebody asked me a question they said what was your what's your favorite thing to do acting directing uh, uh special makeup effects sculpting fencing photography you know, all the things that i do mm-hmm. and it, but there's one thing that's true about all of that the, the joy of creativity you know making something exist that didn't until you made it exist you're almost godlike in that respect you know so you know when uh, when people ask me to describe when we mentioned we were going to talk with you. They asked me to describe what you did. I, I had to stop for a second because I thought to myself, well, he does practical effects. He does acting. He does. I, so basically, I, I tell them, Tom, I said, you're basically, you know, Harryhausen meets Jackie Chan meets Lon Chaney, but with a much cooler goatee. Oh, I like that. I'm going to have to write that one down. Because, um, and, you know, and, and, and forgive me for saying this, but can I give you a compliment that I've always wanted to tell you? Um, okay. You are one of only two people I've ever seen in Hollywood. Only two that have done this have done this magic trick. You and Fred Willard. You found your look early on. And you stuck with it. Like oh, you look at you look at you from the seventies today. You look the same. Exactly. Yeah. And and yeah. Fred Willard looked the same. He's like, you know what? You looked in the mirror and you said, I got it. This is it. And it's awesome. And you you know you see other people go through these disastrous fashion faux pas, but no, you you got it. And I. And the reason I bring that up, it's you mentioned Land of the Dead and your character, the machete guy. I forget his name from the movie. It's the only returning character ever from a dead movie. That's <laughs> and, right. I'm the only can, one. <laughs> you're the only one. And you can recognize it because you have that cool goatee and the machete. I mean, that machete is important. But well, the leather jacket and the jeans, you know, I'm right. I'm right out of the fountain in Dawn. <laughs> and, yeah. and we complained, complained to Greg Nicotero. I said, why, why do I have these big bags under my eyes? He said, because you were in the fountain. I said, I, did, I wasn't in it for a year. I probably got right back out, you know. I'm not water socked, you know. So, but yeah, but I, I hear what you're saying, yeah. No, it's fantastic. And, um, but I mean, like I said, we could, I could ask you a million questions about Dawn of the Dead and, um, and Day of the Dead, because again, I, I think Day of the Dead may be the masterpiece of zombie film. I, I know zombies have become in fashion, and you mentioned Greg Nutero, who again is, uh, I believe, uh, under your tutelage, has become one of the most successful makeup and practical effects people still working today. I, I haven't watched The Walking Dead recently, but when I ha- whenever I see it, uh, the zombie effects are pretty good for television. They're pretty awesome. Well, but that's his crew. I mean, Greg is supervises all. You know, he has a wonderful crew. I don't think he even owns a makeup kit. I think he simply he's the guy that says more purple. You know, put another gash here. You know, he's the guy that supervises all that stuff. It has to pass his inspection, you know. I've been watching. Have you seen the Creep Show television series? I have. You went on Shutter. Yeah. I I have been waiting for a couple of seasons. I was scared that it was going to be canceled. You know how it is with a show. You get into it and it canceled, and you you wish there was more. Well, no. There's um, three seasons now. There's three seasons. So I haven't I haven't seen it yet, but I'm going to. We just I, I just introduced the first few Creep Show movies to some friends, and they love they especially love the the Ted Danson episode from the first one, Leslie Nielsen right. and, and the cockroaches. But um, no, I haven't watched the TV show yet. I don't, I don't know why I brought that up. Cause we were talking about makeup effects. Yeah. And, and, uh, and Greg Nicotero. Well, he, does he, he works on the show, doesn't he? Isn't he, is he showrunner? He's the exec producer. Well, he's the showrunner on creep show. Yeah. He, he the, whole, the only, the only reason it exists is, again is because he made it exist. He, he, uh, he really wanted to do that creep show TV series. But what was I going to say, Greg and I, I was just talking to him yesterday and he asked me if we were Siamese twins because uh, all during our relationship, we would show up places 
dressed exactly the same. And it was, it was astounding you know, how often that happened. So he sent me a picture of his Halloween costume, which is, uh, you know, Clint Eastwood, the, the man with no name, the, the poncho, the guns. And I immediately sent him back a picture of me wearing the poncho because I had just bought it for my Halloween. So without, I mean, six months going by and not even talking, there we are doing it again, you know. So I hope I didn't give away his uh, secret Halloween thing. No, that's that's like like when Eli, I think, uh, who who invented the cotton the cotton gin? Like they, you find out like different people of, who don't even know each other invent the same thing at the same time because it just needed to happen. And right. I think you yeah. guys just need to dress up the same. If I hope you don't mind me bringing this up, but uh, a couple months ago, very publicly, you were involved in an auto uh, auto related accident. Yeah, and car I, and I, car hit me on my bicycle. Yeah. And I hope you're feeling better, but I, oh, I hope you don't mind me saying so, but when you posted those, I saw the pictures you had posted to Twitter, and I think it says something, that when you posted real pictures of your real trauma, they were sort of indistinguishable from some of the effects you had done. Oh, well, there you go. So, my, stuff is, my stuff is very real. My reputation is uh, for realism. Uh, the effects have to be anatomically correct, you know, uh, uh, because I'm the only uh, makeup artist that has seen... Uh, the real thing as a combat photographer in Vietnam, you know, I, uh, I did want to bring, I did want to ask you that about that real quick though, just as far as inspiration goes, because sometimes I think sometimes when you see modern effects or zombies, yeah. uh, a lot of zombies tend to look the same. Now they tend yeah. to look, um, you know, I don't, I don't know the term to use, but they don't look like, like zombies anymore to me. They look like what we think fake zombies should look like. Uh, they well, become a lot more um, puffy. I think the best zombies were, my zombies in my remake of Night of the Living Dead mm -hmm. uh, for a few reasons. One, the, it's unlike The Walking Dead, where they've been walking for 10 years and disintegrating, you know, and, you know, where and you have to show that, you know, these were fresh zombies. This is like when it first happened. And um, the one thing I insisted on was erasing the eyes. Every zombie has lenses in mm -hmm. that erase the eyes. I mean, you've heard that old cliche about the eyes being the windows to the soul. Well, I agree with George Romero. These are soulless cadavers that have the power to walk again and move. Okay. So I got rid of the eyes, which I think really made them, um, well, dead cadavers, you know, scarier. Okay. But um, uh, a few things that uh, uh, Viet Vietnam was a lesson in anatomy for me. Uh, seeing the real thing, because all my stuff is anatomically uh, correct. In fact, even the blood color, you know, uh, I see so many mistakes in movies where they go to a crime scene the next day or something, the blood is red. That would never happen. After 24 hours, the blood turns a dark brown. And also, I hate in movies when an actor is portraying a cadaver or a dead body, and they simply want to look good for the camera with their, their mouths closed and their eyes closed. You know, none of the muscles work when you're dead, including your jaw muscles. Every cadaver I've ever seen, the jaw is slack. The mouth is open and hanging lifelessly. But the eyes are open. It takes a muscle contraction to close the eyes. So if you're, if you're an actor and feeling a dead body, the jaw has to be slack and your, <laughs> eyes, and your eyes are open. And the blood is brown. Okay. <laughs> well, I was uh, I was I was listening to Stuart Gordon uh, doing commentary for Reanimator, 
And I was very interested because, you know, that movie is based in morgues. And he was talking about what you just mentioned about the ways uh, dead bodies look and the realism. I think he called it lividity. And uh, he had a very interesting way of expressing it. He said the, the corpses were every color of the rainbow. And I remember when you watched Dawn of the Dead, the zombies, of course, your version, they look bluish and, and whatever. Uh, but then by the time you get to Day of the Dead, they look the way they do. It was, so that's, what do you good, th- that's a good point, because Dawn of the Dead, you know, was a sequel to Night of the Living Dead, which was a black and white movie. Mm-hmm. So my decision was just to make all the zombies gray. And that would tell you the difference between a real person and a zombie is they're gray. They were always gray. The lighting, the lighting turned them blue or green. I never intended for that to happen, but basically they were supposed to be gray. Now, Day of the Dead was my uh, masterpiece as far as zombies go. They're all different. In fact, the first effect scene we did was those arms coming through the wall at Laurie Cardill. And when that happened, the assistant director ran up to me and said, Tom, they're all different. He, you know, he's expecting Dawn of the Dead gray zombies, okay? So, um, I no, my intention was to make them all different because I did a lot of research with the county coroner down here. And if you died in the attic, you know, in the hot sun up there, you're going to look a lot different than the guy that died in the basement, bloated, you know, with, you know, water all over him. So they had to be different. And, that, and so you proved my point. They were supposed to be different in Day of the yes. Dead. But you know what's funny when you watch, but when you watch Dawn of the Dead, you you the coloring doesn't matter after a while because the zombies are all have so much personality, and they repeat. Right. And whether you know for whether for you know practical reasons or economic reasons, it's still watchable even when you see the Hare Krishna zombie. I don't even think kids today know what Hare Krishna is, but they know what a Hare Krishna zombie look like. Yeah, right. Uh, but uh, can, it was wondering if you could dispel uh, a rumor for me real quick because this has been gnawing at me for years. The blood. In Dawn of the Dead, was that SpaghettiOs or was that not SpaghettiOs? Because I've heard different things. No, SpaghettiOs were never <laughs> a part of the on Dawn of the Dead, and I'm I totally hate the way the blood looked in Dawn of the Dead. In the bottle, it looked terrific. It looked really like real blood. It was from the 3M company. 3M used to make chemicals for you know uh, copiers. Okay. But they had a stage blood that I bought, and it photographed like strawberry Kool-Aid. It was horrible. Uh, and I thought it took away from the effects. Um, but people don't seem to mind that blood color. But I've seen worse blood color in Hammer films. I was going to bring that up with Dracula, you know, at the beginning yeah. when they said, the, and that was shocking just seeing a little splatter. I mean, that's how, how times have changed. Well, now they use something called Kensington Gore. And uh, it's very realistic um, as far as the blood goes in, in, in British films, you know. I did want to ask you a, quick, a real quick question, though, about Night of the Living Dead, the remake. I know you've been out there saying the experience making it was uh, not optimal for you. But I think time has proven that you have cre- you made the best remake of that film because Lord knows uh, that that film has been remade more than Let It Be has been remade as a song. There's even you, a new. There's even a new animated version. I saw that. Yeah, just this year. Uh, some and with very limited animation. My question to you: how, Looking back at it now, this was a film made with the full support of George Romero. Like, unlike the Dawn of the Dead remakes and the the horrible Day of the Dead remakes, they're terrible. The worst things I've ever seen. Terrible. But 
how do you feel about Dawn of the Dead? I'm excuse me, uh, Night of the Living Dead now, looking back on it as a film? Well, it was the worst experience of my life. But uh, I mean, I was going through a divorce. There's a lot of stuff happening personally that affected me. But uh, and also, you know, uh, I have a I just put a book out. I don't know if you've seen it. It's called Night of the Living Dead 90, the version you've never seen. Mm. Are you aware? Are you aware of that book? No, I'm not. I'm okay. writing it down right now. So you can get it. I think you can get it on Amazon. But it's Night of the Living Dead 90, the version you've never seen. And it's the 600 storyboards that I created for the movie. Now, I had those storyboards up on the wall in my office, where if the costume person came in or the set designer or whoever, I could go through the movie on the wall, the whole movie, right in front of them of what I was going to do. Now, George Romero came in, looked at those storyboards, and he said, these are fabulous, but you've got a six-week movie up here on the wall, and you've only got four weeks to shoot it. So they started cutting stuff, you know. Um, but the book shows everything that I intended to do and didn't get to do in detail. It talks about, there's lots of photos, you know, but the storyboards, it's, it's like looking at a comic book of the movie and you're seeing a version you've never seen before because you're seeing the stuff that I didn't get to do simply because of not having time, enough time. So the way I feel about it today, you know, I used to hate that movie mainly because of what I didn't get to do. I think the movie is only 40% of what I intended to do. Here's my philosophy about uh, a sculpture, a project, a painting, anything. If something bothers you about it, you must get rid of it or you must change it because every time you look at it, that's, it's going to bother you, whatever bothered you. Okay, so I didn't get to do that with Night of the Living Dead, so I hated it. But I went to a midnight screening once. I got there at 11 o'clock to do a Q&A before the movie. And I wasn't going to sit down there and watch it again, but I did. And it was the first time I saw it objectively. And it is. It's damn good. The, yeah, the, actors, are, yeah, the actors are fantastic. The suspense is there. You know, I mean, it's really a good movie. And I hear it all the time. It's better than the original. Uh, it's the best remake out there because uh, there's been so many horrible remakes. OK, yeah. so I'm, I'm very proud of the movie now. Because it's a miracle that it's what 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 we what is there is there, because of the time constraints and and my hands getting slapped about doing stuff. You know? Yeah, I, I'll say this: people have uh, people have coupled it before, but I'll just tell you straight up that apart from the Thing remake, the Fly remake, and the Blob remake, which are all '80s, your remake of Night of the Living Dead technically is a '90s film, 1990, but it's it's as good as any of those. It's respectful. It's a real film. It feels grounded. And I, I know you probably would, would make changes to it, but as, as a remake, it's, it's the best remake of a Romero film. By well, you, also, you, also get, you also get a bit of a sequel at the end where Barbara goes on, you know, um, and, and that, that was really my idea. I mean, the script ended, you know, when Barbara was uh, killed or taken away. And I said, why can't, to George, I said, why can't she come back and help these people? He said, well, she's dead. I said, you don't know that. You only see her dragged off in the original movie. You don't know that she's dead. Why can't she come back? Because I also had seen Alien, and here's Sigourney Weaver, and I wanted a female hero. So he wrote, he, then he wrote the ending that you see in the film with Barbara coming back and kicking ass, but she's a cold-blooded murderer. She kills Harry in cold blood and says, 
that's he's here's another one for the fire so here's something you probably don't know um it's in the book it's in the night of the living dead version you've never seen book but um in the end when barbara comes back to the house at the end she thinks she sees something in the attic in the window she thinks it's ben so she goes up there she doesn't go into the living room she goes up to the the attic and it's full of junk and there's a full-length mirror there in the middle of the floor and harry is hiding behind that mirror so here's a two shot of the mirror with barbara's reflection in it and harry peeking out from behind it in one shot there's two of them barbara in the mirror harry coming out from behind the mirror and he says oh you came back and you see her reflection raise the gun harry ducks behind the mirror she fires and the mirror of course uh, gets a bullet hole and does a windshield shatter and then you see harry's point of view falling to the floor and he looks up and the last thing he sees is barbara's reflection in the mirror which is all distorted now because of the bullet hitting it and that's the moment that barbara becomes one of them you know how she says you're one of us we're one of them you know whatever she says that's the moment that it happens to her and that's when she looks over the balcony and says there's another one up here and they carry ben and Harry to the fire and put them in the fire, almost like face to face. The end credits are them burning into non-existence. That was my ending for the film, which I didn't get to do. Okay, so, so that the the back then I looked at these things like, wow, this movie, people will will be thrilled to see these changes and to see these gifts that I'm handing them, you know. Uh, and the movie would have been so much better, I think, that way. But what survives is, as you said, it's a terrific, it's a terrific remake, you know. And I know it's a small detail, but to me, the best, the the, the biggest change to it was the scene when the daughter, you know, kills the mother. You have her biting the mother, but in the original, there's a spade for some reason. Well, and if you look, if, if you look in the book, I saw I that. Mean, there, if you look in the book, that whole death scene was in shadows on the wall, on the staircase, and the mother actually reaches out and grabs the trowel. And, but she doesn't defend herself with it because this is her daughter. So she lets her daughter feed on her. That was the most I could do with a little bit of time we had that night that we were shooting it. And we did a homage to the trial on the wall simply by splashing blood on it, you know? One quick question about remakes and everything before we move on. Uh, like I said, Romero films have been remade ad nauseum, uh, most very poorly. Uh, I know Zack Snyder remade Dawn of the Dead. People, people it has its fans and I'm, it's okay. But Poor Day of the Dead has been remade so many times. I don't know what happened to that film. There's a TV show now based on it that looks terrible. Uh, have you, do you have any opinions on any of the remakes that have been more respectful? And what's your opinion on fast zombies versus slow zombies? Well, George Romero sells bumper, used to sell bumper stickers that said fast zombies suck. And I agree, I agree with him. These are, these, are, these are cadavers. They're not superheroes. You know, they're, they're continuing to rot. And they're, no, I don't, I don't like fast zombies. Um, but, you know, Zack Snyder, he had to make them scarier again. So it's, fast zombies are scarier than lumbering ones that you could run away from. You know, I kept them slow in Night of the Living Dead. But um, I, haven't, I, I don't watch these remakes. I have not seen any of the Day of the Dead remakes. I just don't need to, I don't need to waste my time there, you know, and, and be offended by them. The, everyone's asking me about the differences between Zack's Dawn of the Dead 
you know, in my Gone of the Dead, you you remember the zombies, the the nun zombie, the baseball player. I think in Zach's, you kind of remember the Jay Leno zombie because they pointed them out. And there's no bike gang, you know. Um, so, you know, he did what he had to do. Well, I, I mentioned uh, a few of the zombies from Day of the Dead. My only real question for you, it's not really about the zombie, but it's about, and we all, everyone talks about Bub and, you know, we all, I, we all love Bub. I think he's the pinnacle of zombie makeup. I, I, I've never seen anything better. And I know um, Walking Dead had a little Bub cameo in one of the episodes years ago, but it was about Dr. Well, there's 12, there's 12 things that I've done with my Living Dead movies that The Walking Dead has copied, not just Bub. <laughs> they, uh, there's, 12, there's 12 of them. Well, my question is about Dr. Tongue real quick, because Dr. Tongue was the first time a zombie prosthetic ever terrified me as a child. And I didn't, I didn't know for years it was actually a puppet. And I, I forget where I saw it, but it was a documentary, I believe you were on it, where they were demonstrating Dr. Tongue like in a suburb, like in the, back, the backyard of some house. And uh, Dr. Tongue is being, anim- being manipulated and it looks disgusting and it's fun. But just very casually, this old lady's walking in the background like nothing. And I thought to myself, to be your neighbor and to see this stuff going yeah, on. You get used to that. I was going to say, oh, there he goes again. But yeah. um, but it brings me up back to the documentary because there's a really great scene when you're walking downtown, uh, the town in Pennsylvania, and you're talking about the theater you used to go to as a child and you saw all these great films. And it reminded me of something uh, really quick. I don't know. Have you ever have you ever heard of the Empire Theater in Kansas City from AMC? No. no. It was the very first theater that Halloween was shown at in, the, I think, 78. The very first time ever. And it was a theater that has a lot of historical value in Kansas City, much, you know, every town has their own theater. And it's been bought, been purchased. I think it was the Alamo Draft House for a while, but they didn't survive the pandemic. And now it's been purchased by, I think, the B&B Theater Group. My question to you is going back to the theatrical movement, because this film, the, your documentary, is on, VO, uh, I don't want to say VOD, but it's, you can stream it. And do you think that not because of the pandemic, but do you think sort of exacerbated by it that you have films like this or you have indie horror films, you have other films that may not have done well or had trouble getting distribution? Do you think that's changed now? And do you think that when you have a movie like Halloween Kills, which just came out recently, earning all the money, it made a lot of money, but there's also a place for indie films as well. Uh, do you think that, do you think the emerging popularity of digital is going to help the horror industry or even or even any movie with practical effects? That's a good question. Um, uh, well, you know, the COVID just through a big year and a half, two year, changed everything, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, like, I haven't been to a movie theater in, in maybe two years, okay? That's going to be a unique experience when I finally do go. And I'm probably, the next time I go to a movie theater will be to see Wes Anderson's you know, French Dispatch. I'm such a yeah. big fan of his stuff, but I don't think I don't think any I don't think you can answer that question. Or at least I can't. Uh, with how I think digital filmmaking. I mean, you could I could you could take your phone right now and go shoot a movie on it. People, Quentin Tarantino tells, you know, if you 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 want to learn how to make movies, make a movie. You know, that's what he did. He never went to film school. You know, he he watched every movie ever made, and you know he had he was intelligent enough to you know, to put it together, but you can make a movie on your phone right now. I mean, uh, I'm, I get totally exasperated when I go to Hulu or Shudder or Tubi or Peacock, 
and see how many horror movies there are that I've never heard of. I have no idea what they are, you know. So that's that's to me that's kind of like flooding, flooding, diffusing, literally diffusing, and I use literally correctly here, uh, literally diffusing the content. I mean, I have to every now and then I'll accidentally stumble on something that's terrific, like the boy who cried wolf. You know that that mini series. Um, but I'm stumbled on it. I didn't hear anything about it, knew nothing about it. And like the, all these other movies, you know, I, I usually choose something that I've already seen, you know, uh, uh, on these streaming networks, you know. So w will it affect it? I mean, I think there's too much going on. There's too much content. Uh, uh, obviously, they must be constantly making this stuff, independent films, you know. Because I, but I really, I don't even know what the hell they are. You know, um, I'm 74. I just, I got a new movie coming out February 1st called The Black Phone, starring Ethan Hawke. Yes. Blumhouse Productions. It's a, it's a universal picture. So I, I know I'm going to be credited with creating the new universal monster. Okay. Um, but uh, I can't talk too much about it except. He has a bunch of different looks, and I designed the looks, okay, that he that he wears in the movie. Um, but um, I'm really want to answer your question, but um, I I don't think I know. I don't think I know enough about it. Uh, the again, it's, a, it's you're just flooded with stuff. I was in England once. A guy I did a movie for over there. I can't recall his name. Or the name of the movie? What was it? Un Unearthed or uh, I forget. Anyway, his next movie he shot on his cell phone, yeah. and there was a there was a premiere of it in England, projecting his cell phone image. You know, it's amazing. <laughs> I know. I think Steven Soderbergh filmed one or two films on his iPhone. You know, they it's it's not just indie filmmakers. I think I think it's a freedom that I think some filmmakers are looking for that they they can't get strictly by working with the studio system, uh, not just, you know, we talked about this before, but not just censoring or making a movie palatable to like kids, you know, PG-13. But I think there's something to be said going back no, to the you, way Romero. You said it. It's, you said it. It's the freedom. Yeah. I'm sitting here. I'm sitting here at my dining room table. Uh, I'm, I just reached out and I grabbed, I grabbed my $5,000 Leica camera. Hmm. I never use. I never use it. I think I shot three pictures on it because I was intrigued by the fact that the camera can send the pictures to my cell phone. You know, I have three motor drive, motor drive Nikons, never touch them. My cell phone does it all. My cell phone in my pocket does it all. If you had said that to me 20 years ago, I, th I think you're full of shit, you know. Um, but it's the freedom, you know. I mean, look at the YouTube, Instagram. Uh, I just saw recently that a girl was raped on a train. Yeah, I saw that. Nobody helped her, but they all had their phones out shooting it. Do you, do you remember that story from the 60s in New York? There was that very famous story where the woman was walking down the street and, and somebody, you know, accosted her and, and violated her. And it was very famously, everybody would sat and watch. And this was back in the 60s and no one did anything. And, you know, it's, you mentioned Clint Eastwood a couple of minutes ago, the costume, but, you know, there was that story that, of the film he made about the three Marines that were on the, the bus or the, 
the train in France, I think. Right. And, right. and they stopped like all it takes to make a story is for someone to do something or someone to do nothing. And that's it's pretty sad commentary, I think, on well, our society. What you're, what you're describing to me is uh, a scene right out of Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Yeah. Something happens and everybody just turns emotionless to watch. Yeah. <laughs> that would be a scene from that movie. You know, another an extended scene that would be, you know, it's what's you know, there's something what's wrong with people, you know. Of course, you know the the famous final scene in that movie where where he just points and goes ah, he turns her in because everyone's. No, I'm talking. I'm talking about the original. Oh, I'm not, I'm sorry. I was I was thinking of the Leonard Nimoy one. <laughs> sorry. They, no, the um, original. The original is the best one for me. But you know, still that that people would become passive because they don't want to become involved because they they feel that. You know, they they worry about themselves for a moment. Well, it's of kind others. of a gen, it's kind of a generalization. I mean, there's also a thing on YouTube where these two guys walk into a fast, uh, uh, like a Seven Eleven with guns, and a, a marine standing there just grabs the gun and punches the guy, and you know, saves the day. So there are some of us who would uh, who would not just turn off and be passive. You know, I'm not going to stand for a woman getting raped in front of me. There's no way that's going to happen. You know. Um, but then I'm talking about what the days when men were men. Mm-hmm. I posted that once. I posted a picture of 10 actors, Charles Bronson, Yul Brynner, Charlton Heston, Steve McQueen, Robert Mitchum. And I said, when men were men, my, my assistant made me take it down. He said, you have to be thinking more progressive today. I said, but this is how I feel. He said, yeah, but that's what can get you canceled. You know? Yeah, that's. That's not a fun topic, and I apologize. And I'm sorry we have to even even talk like that. But uh, speaking of, of happy things, uh, before we start wrapping up, I did have a big question for you because we haven't brought them up at all, and I know you probably get asked this a million times, so I'll keep it I'll keep it short. But in relationship to your participation with Friday the Thirteenth and Jason, I have a surprising question for you. For those who don't know, you helped create the original Jason makeup, like pre mask. I did create Jason, yeah. yes. Like when people think of Jason, they think of, you know, the hockey mask, but we're talking deformed child Jason who pulls her under the river or under the lake. And then you came back and I think it was at part four with Corey Feldman, I think. Yes. Sorry, there's so many final chapters in this franchise. <laughs> I don't know which final chapter. Well, no, is. no, there's only one. Friday the 13th, part four is called the final chapter because they really thought it was going to be the last one. The series was waning, you know, but it made so much money, you know, we're up to part 12 right now. And, you know, I stopped watching when Jason went to space and they put the, I, the I, stopped watching, I stopped watching on part five when the fucking ashtray was Jason, his spirit kept invading stuff, you know, it was pretty bad, um, but I hey, did, I, you know, usually if I go to a multiplex cinema, when I leave my movie, I'll walk into some other movie just because it's there, you know. Yeah. And, and I walked in on Friday the 13th, and when Jason walks into a closet and he comes out as Robocop, you know. Yeah. So I thought they're still stupid. Even the last one was so stupid. I can't believe how stupid they are. Is that the one where he became Rambo, I think, where he's setting traps? No, when part 12, whatever the hell that one was, where they put his head in a tree shredder. And it, te- it tears the mask off and they don't show his face. Derek Mears was in a great makeup as Jason. They don't show it. But then they drag him 150 yards and throw him in the lake. 
And as soon as they throw him in the lake, you're looking at your watch because you know he's going to pop up. And that's why they threw him there. You know, they try to capitalize on the, the scare at the end of part four that I invented. OK, uh, so it's it's just stupid. It's in the hands of incompetent boobs. You know, it always has been. <laughs> That's funny. Um, but my, my segue, though, is going to be into something a little surprising. And that's another medium. You know, we talked about YouTube. We talked about that. But uh, I want to talk real quick about video games. Yeah. And, the yeah. and because I know you worked on Friday the 13th video game, the game. Yeah. And I think the character you helped create was Savini Jason. And well, actually, I created all the kills. Uh, there were a few historic ones that were left in. But I created about 120 kills. And that's Savini Jason, right? And for those who don't know, uh, there's the video game horror genre is among the most popular of all the video game genre. I think it's the most streamed genre. I don't watch Five Nights at Freddy's, but I know millions of people do and things like that. Resident Evil uh, owes its existence to George Romero and the work you did. Uh, they've acknowledged this. They've even hired, I think, Romero to do commercials for them. Uh, my question is, what do you think about video games as far as horror goes? I know, you know, we talked about practical effects in video and, and CG and with video games, you kind of have to work with the medium, but what are your thoughts on, on video games in relation to horror or, and how they, they, you know, they further their creativity. Well, I just did, I just did another one. I just did the evil dead video game, um, created the character for this new evil dead video game that's coming out. Um, uh, we 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 did motion capture on Kane Hodder for the kills in the Friday the 13th video game. Now, Kane Hodder goes in and he plays as a counselor and tries to outsmart himself. OK, I think that's hilarious. Uh, some of the most successful Friday the 13th movies are when the director decided to make the kills happen with the, Jason's point of view. You became Jason. You were, in essence, doing the video game by watching that movie, you know, back then, part two, part three, you know. So um, I, it, people love these things, you know. I, uh, I don't know if there's a video game where I could just grab a rifle and go out and shoot zombies, but I would love to do that, you know. Um, so it's cathartic, I think. Um, and I think maybe that's why the movies are so successful, that you're, that you're doing the same thing. But uh, as far as video games and horror movies, well, you know, great. Uh, it's, uh, I went to a, I went to a, um, I went to, I did an interview at a huge, huge facility in LA that puts out the horror video games. You know, I did like a, a talk show where I'm sitting there talking about them, okay? They make so much more money than movies, you know, like a blockbuster movie is a blockbuster because it made, you know, six, seven, eight hundred million dollars. Video games make billions of dollars. OK, so that's where the mind and heart is now. You know, the, the most popular video game in the world is a series called Call of Duty, which is, uh, sure, I, you know, I'm aware of it. Yeah, I'm and, you know, and people always say, oh, it's World War Two, but. But the most popular entries are always the one that have that they have a component called zombies and where literally you're stuck in a house and it's night of the living dead. You have to uh -huh. keep the zombies out. And whenever there's a call, a call of duty with zombies, it's more popular. <laughs> it's always that. It's always connected have, to that. I don't have machines. I don't play video games, but I'm aware I'm around people that do a lot and I see what they're doing. And it just looks like fun, you know.
And I think, uh, I think the, I think the younger fans and even the older fans connect on this and they, you know, like horror movies used to get the impression that, oh, they're going to turn your child into Satan. He's going to end up murdering people. That never happens. And the same with video games. And I think the same with any medium comic books is that I think the people who know, know, and I think the people who don't know, don't know. And I think that makes a lot of sense. Yes, it does make a lot of sense. Yeah. You know, and I, I like I agree with you. I think we're lacking a lot of that in our culture right now, where people can sit back and look at something. And before we head out, to Tom, I do have one quick question for you. Final question, um, and that is about your legacy, because I think that's what this documentary does. It, like I said, it reaffirms your place, and I think it repositions you as. And again, I, I don't. That's why I never use the expression. Um, you know, the ones we talked about were uh, the Sultan of Splatter or whatever, because I think you're so much more than that. And I'm hoping that the people who come away from this have a better understanding and appreciation for what you do, not just from an art form, but as, like I said, a popularizer and someone who's able to make something well, magic in front of you. And my final question is, I know you act a lot. You're in a lot of movies and really fun. You're always fun whenever you pop up. When I hear the mainstream press, when I hear mainstream like film critics, you know, the Criterion people, they talk about you. They keep mentioning, you know, the perks of being a wallflower as sort of something that legitimizes you. But my question to you is, I think people are going to be watching the original Dawn of the Dead in 100 years. I don't think they're going to be watching perks of a, being a wallflower in 100 years. And I think it's because of all the stuff you've done that you are indispensable to that industry. And I, in, in, a, in a way that just an actor wouldn't be. I don't, I don't know what your thoughts on that were. Well, um, I get people that come up to me at conventions who have just seen Perks of a Wallflower. They said, boy, I bet you were surprised to see me in that. Yeah. No zombies, no machine guns, you know. So, uh, but that's just a lucky case. Ch- Stephen Chopsky, mm-hmm. I'm, the first per- I'm the first person he cast on that movie because he's a big fan, you know. So, um, but I agree with you. I mean, Dawn of the Dead and, you know, Smoke and Mirrors, There'll be people that have never heard of me that'll watch Smoke and Mirrors and, uh, and be inspired. I mean, that's the key word. I, I hear that a lot. You inspired me to do this. You inspired me to do that. I was sitting in Greg Nicotero's hot tub with him. You know, and I said, Greg, I have two words for your success and for what you're doing right now. And those words are, you're good, you know. And I said, you even if you hadn't met me, I think you would have this level of success. And he totally disagreed with me. And his father disagreed with me because, you know, he had to go explain to his father why he was dropping out of medical school, you know, um, that I was totally inspirational. I inspired him to make these huge changes in his life. And, you know, he became what he became. Um, so, but I hear that word a lot about being inspired and that makes me happy. You know, I'm happy to have inspired you is something I say a lot. And I just got to say, it's a shame. It's a shame because uh, with all the digital distribution, we see documentaries come out every day. We see we're basically commercials for entertainers. You see like 100 documentaries on Britney Spears just this week. You see Billie Eilish. You see all these things. And they're basically just commercials for products. But something like Smoke and Mirrors, the story of Tom Zavini, takes years and years and years to get to an audience. But I think it's worth the wait. And I think anybody who watches this is going to get a better appreciation, not just for who you are, Tom, but for what you do or, and what you continue to inspire people to do. And I, well, I think, I think it has a lot yeah. of heart. I hear that a lot. It has a lot of heart. Uh, I showed the film 
not the finished film. I showed a rough cut in Montreal at a festival. And uh, I got up afterwards and apologized to the crowd. I said, I'm sorry about all the personal stuff. And they were like, no, no, that's what we want. We know about you in the movies. We know about you as an actor or a director. We want to see this personal stuff. I mean, Smoke and Mirrors is filled with the movie stuff, but there's a lot of personal stuff that maybe people didn't know. And, um, you know, it moves. A lot of people have told me how much it moved them, you know, for, you know, I was a single parent. I did all that stuff from Pittsburgh while raising my daughter. I turned down so many things that would have enhanced my career because I'm thinking my daughter was my priority, you know, so that's moving to people. And in the movie, and in the movie, when I say, I wish, I remember standing at a window in the living room, my dad was sitting on the couch and I wanted to turn around and walk over to him and tell him I loved him and hug him, but never did. Okay. I can't tell you how many guys relate to that and tell me how they felt the same way, you know, so it touches people on many levels. And I will say this, that we've avoided talking about it, and I'm, I will let the audience find for themselves when they watch, but it does help address and answer the big question that I think all your fans have asked, uh, Tom, that, you know, why, you know, what happened and why did you largely disappear from doing effects? And I think the, the answer is in the film. And I would hope that when people, when people see this, they come up with a better understanding of why, you know, why those choices were made. Yeah. Well, in a, in a way, I kind of made those choices and turned down a lot of stuff. But but don't forget, I have a movie coming out mm-hmm. February 1st, yeah. right, where I did it again, so, you know. Yeah, and you're hardly retired. You're still you're still active. You're still doing things. And you're in much better shape than most people, uh, you know, 50 years younger than you. And I, 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 well, I, I, gotta... I think that's I think that's what helped me when the car hit me on my bicycle. You know, I was I'm 74. A car hit me on my bicycle. Um, I'm a, I'm a hundred percent now. Uh, two weeks ago, I couldn't turn my head left or right, and now I have free motion. So uh, I'm back. I'm back. And in fact, I might even publish the yearly traditional birthday picture that I used to do, with my age printed largely well, on the, the cakes. birthday cake. Yeah, I think I cakes. might do that again because it's 75 this year. I might do it again. Please, I think we missed those. I think, and but and, and not a birthday cake with a head on it though. That's creep show. Mm-hmm. No, no. So um, I think I think that's a, I think that's a good place to wrap up. Uh, I just want to say thank you once again to our very, very special guest, uh, the one, the only Mr. Tom Savini. We have been chatting about the new documentary that's finally available for you to watch. It's called Smoke and Mirrors, the story of Tom Savini, directed by uh, Jason Baker. And Tom, it was a pleasure. Thank you very much. You're very welcome. Subscribe to the Popsar Podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app or service today.